1: This is Sean Mullaney, and you're listening to the Earn and Invest podcast.
0: When I was practicing medicine, it was my least favorite day of the month. It was the day that the accountant came in and we looked at our books. Now, let me back up for a moment and explain. You see, when I went through medical school and residency and learned how to be a doctor, it was almost like I was learning another language. And by the time I finished my education, the way I would talk about disease and illness would be almost unrecognizable. To my patients. So, a big part of becoming a doctor was learning how to translate, learning how to take these complex medical ideas and issues and make them palatable to someone who hadn't studied science. In fact, part of being a doctor really is being a teacher, and that's part of the root of the word doctor. So, every month, When my accountant would come in and he would start talking to us about our numbers and how the practice was doing, he would use terms that I just wouldn't understand. You see, I had never really taken any business classes, I never took any accounting classes. So the language he used, much like the language I use when I'm speaking about medicine, is a little non intuitive to your average person. So these Visits every month became a little bit of a pain, and it often sent me going to the internet to look up these terms and try to figure out what the heck he was talking about. Now, I figure I'm a little bit ahead of the game. I have an extensive education, I went to college and medical school, and in fact, my mother is an accountant. So I know a little bit about numbers and businesses, but I figure this is something we all deal with. And there is no time when it becomes more apparent than at year's end, when we are trying to tie our financial lives into a pretty bow and pay as little taxes as possible. Sean Mullaney is a CPA, financial planner, and the president of Mullaney Financial and Tax, Inc. But if you spend any time hanging around FIRE, that's Financial Independence Retire Early circles, you may know him as the FI tax guy. Sean, I'm so excited to have you on the show.
1: Doc G, it's a real privilege to be here.
0: It's great to have you. Admittedly, on the Earn and Invest podcast, we often spend a lot of time talking about mindset. So I was really excited to get you on the show to go for tactics, to get a little bit more tactical, because I think that's important at this time of the year. Before we get into year-end tax planning, I thought I would be remorse if I didn't ask you about what seems to be the biggest issue right now in October 2020. Donald Trump's tax returns just became public or at least semi-public through a New York Times article. And I hear a lot of arguing going on and people really take one of two stances when they're looking at this information. So supposedly he paid $750 total of taxes for two years in a row. The last two years we have records for him. Half the people I talk to think that there's something unethical going on here and he must be cheating the rules somehow. The other half tell me, well, this is what wise tax management looks like. So just broad, big picture-wise, as you heard the news and read the New York Times article, what was your first thoughts? Were you like, okay, there's probably something bad going on here? Or did your brain go directly to, well, there's definitely ways to do it. And he's a real estate mogul. And this is something that can be done. So, Doc, it's
1: more the latter. I will say, so he has a very unique profile, right? there are few entertainers slash real estate professionals out there. I guess it exists. He's proof of that. Here's the thing. He invests in real estate. Real estate is very much tax advantaged. We know that the tax laws have been very favorable for real estate for many, many years, long before Trump came on the scene. In fact, before Trump came in the scene in 19, before 1986, they were much more favorable. And he also has business interests, right? So those two things, business interests and real estate interests can generate losses on paper even though they might cash flow positive. So it's theoretically possible that you can cash flow positive yet have a tax loss and then, you know, pay no taxes one year and then carry that loss forward into future years. So, you know, I haven't re- reviewed his tax returns obviously. There's a lot of conjecture on this subject, but very big picture is it theoretically possible that he could have tax losses that are offsetting future income. Absolutely. And there's a lot of play in the joints, meaning maybe his accountants took some aggressive positions in that regard, and they didn't in other regards. So who knows exactly what his situation is. And he, I understand he has many different business interests. So it could be that on this side of the page, there's a huge dispute between the IRS and him. And then on another side of the page, maybe it's not as disputatious So, yeah, he's a very interesting and unique profile, but it's at least theoretically possible that what his accountants are reporting on his tax returns, as the New York Times claims that they exist, is theoretically true, or at least materially true.
0: So it may be one of those cases of don't blame the player, blame the game, huh?
1: It may very well be, and we just don't know.
0: Well, we are going to talk about end of year tax moves. But before we even do that, I have to ask this really important question. Do we have to do this end of year? It seems like we get to October, November, December, and we think about these things a lot. But maybe aren't we better served thinking about these things in January and February?
1: Doc, you use a word I really love in this regard, and that's mindset. So absolutely, 100%. If you want to have a tax-optimized mindset, I think it starts in the beginning of the year, not the end of the year. However, there's sort of this traditional scramble at the end of the year. All right, I gotta you know, plan out, you know, get my optimized deductions and retirement contributions and those sorts of things. Here's what I'd say to your listeners: is right now, great time, year end, why not ask some good tax questions, right? Have that mindset of I don't necessarily have all the answers. And the people out on the internet and all these experts, they have some of the answers, but it's really about asking the right questions now. And then in January, February, if you have some downtime, do more long-term tax planning. So right, right now, you know, end of year, it's some good tactics. Let's optimize for 2020 as best we can. Go into 2021, let's do more long-term planning. And just a quick note, you know anything I say here is not individual advice for any particular listener out there. But it's about getting you asking the right questions so that you can formulate your own right, you know, best approach or work with an advisor in an educated way to formulate your best approach.
0: And it's also notable that at the beginning of the year you just don't know where you're going to be economically. You don't know exactly how much money you're going to make, especially if you have side hustles or a small business owner. You're not exactly sure how things are going to be. So, unfortunately or fortunately, sometimes you can't even start making those decisions until you get later in the year.
1: Yeah, that's a really good point, doc, and I've seen this in my client base, right? Oh, how much you're going to make this year, it's, you know, X. And then coronavirus happens. And then it's not X, it's X plus Y and Y is a big number, or it's X minus Y and Y is a big number. So the way I look at it is do good long-term planning and then adjust. And this sort of Q4 is a great time to do those adjustments and to ask those questions at the end of the year. What can I be doing? How can we maybe optimize now and optimize long-term? I love how you frame this, and you've said it multiple times already. What
0: are the questions we should be asking at this time of year? I'm gonna jump into a bunch of those questions. Sure. I am a tax novice. I wasn't kidding in my introduction. I really didn't take any business or accounting classes. So I'm going to ask you one of the most basic questions, but I think it's really important for this time of year is let's talk about deductions. A lot of us get confused on what the standard deduction is versus itemizing. Can you help us understand, especially for the novice, what the thought process is going into whether you should take the standard deduction or you should itemize?
1: Yes, doc. So the way it works is on every tax return you file, you do you either claim a standard deduction or you claim itemized deductions, right? And right now for 2020, the standard deduction for a single person is $12,400. The standard deduction for a married filing joint return is 24,800. Let's go with a single person for a second, right? If I'm a single person and my standard deduction is $12,400 and I tally up all my itemized deductions and say they come out to $11,000, well, guess what? I'm going to just take the standard deduction, right? I have no obligation to take a lower deduction for the government, right? But if I tally up my itemized deductions and they're now at $15,000, that's in excess of that $12,400. So now I'm going to itemize. And when we say itemized, that's a certain category of deductions. And today there's really the big three, what I call the big three, and that's state taxes, home mortgage interest, and charitable contributions. So a real big indicia of, hey, you know what? I'm going to take the itemized deduction is I'm married and I rent and I'm not all that charitably inclined. Okay. If you're in the, that position, you're almost certainly going to be itemizing your deductions. And we could talk a little bit more about this. There was a big tax law change at the end of 2017 that greatly reduces state tax deductions. They're now only $10,000 per tax return, single or married filing joint. So if I'm married filing joint and, you know, Doc, say you and your wife, you know, have a great year this year, win the lottery, and you pay, you know, you win, a, you make a billion dollars, and you pay all this Illinois state income tax, right? The most you can deduct this year on your tax return is $10,000. So now you and your wife have a $10,000 deduction and that's it. If your home mortgage interest and your charitable contributions aren't 14,800, you're just going to take a standard deduction even though you won the lottery and paid, you know, millions to the state of Illinois in taxes. So yeah, there's some nuances here. One thing we should talk about is charitable contributions. That's a, an area where you could do some end-of-year planning. The big one I'm in favor of is something called a donor-advised fund. I think for many people, this makes a whole lot of sense. And we could talk about that a little bit more if you're interested.
0: Yeah, we definitely will. I don't wanna jump ahead to that yet. Let me clear up a few terms, and you can certainly correct me if this doesn't sound right. But again, for the novice who's not familiar with looking at this information. So what we're talking about is when you make a certain amount of money there's a certain amount of tax that needs to be paid. So what the deductions are is it allows us to deduct from the tax that we owe on our income for certain things, like you were saying, donations or for home mortgage or for some of our state taxes. So when you're talking about the standard deduction, you're really talking about what is assumed to be an average for your standard average person, The government defines this is what your average person should probably have as a deduction. And then you can decide whether you want to itemize if you think that your items will eventually account for more than the standard. One way of dealing with this is to have as little income as possible. And. For most of us who have W-2 jobs, the easiest way to reduce our income is to think about putting money towards retirement savings. So what type of thought process do you tell your clients to have when it comes to 401ks or other retirement plans coming towards the end of the year?
1: Yeah. So I, I I think there you need to be thinking about this year, but you also need to be thinking about your future. Okay. Because it doesn't make sense to contribute to a 401k this year if I'm in the 10% tax bracket, maybe I'm a young person, I'm in the 10% tax bracket. And so when I contribute a thousand dollars at year end to a 401k, my federal tax savings is $100, 10% of $1,000, right? Well, maybe I'm a young doctor and I just started out and doctor, you know, better than I do how doctors are compensated, but let's just say this, you know, I graduated med school, and I only worked for four months as a doctor, and so I'm in a really low tax bracket. But years from now, I'm going to be at the highest tax brackets. I'll be paying 37%. So let's say you you take a deduction now at 10% to your 401k contribution, but then years later, you've done so well, you retire, and you have to take the money out of the 401k, and you pay a tax at 37% not good, right? You've created a 10% deduction for a later 37% inclusion. But let's talk about a different fact pattern, one more applicable in the FIRE community. Let's say you very much subscribe to the tenants of five and you've decided I'm retiring at age 40 because I'm going to have so much wealth that that will be able to sustain me after age 40. Well, then you very much might want to be thinking about what am I going to do to max out my 401k? Because the strategy there is generally, hey, in my 30s, I'm going to hustle and I'm going to make a lot of money and I'm going to be at a high tax rate. So I'll be paying, say, a 32% federal tax rate. So now if I put an extra thousand in the 401k, I'll save $320 today. And then tomorrow, when I'm retired, I'm going to be in the 10 or 12% tax bracket. So I take that money out at $100 of tax or $120 of tax. Now, you remember the growth will be subject to tax too. So it's a little, you know, it's not just two different numbers. You got to think about that growth as well. But yeah, the way I would approach end of year contributions is what's my long term strategy? And, you know, having money in retirement accounts is generally a good thing. So look at your maximums, right? It's $19,500 for people under age 50 in a 401k, 26,000 for folks 50 and older. And you know, that needs to generally get done by December 31st for workplace 401ks. IRAs are a little different. You have till April 15th. So IRAs are the one area where if you're not exactly sure You don't need to do the two-minute drill by New Year's Eve to figure that out. You do have until April 15th of 2021 to figure that one out. So to put it
0: another way, when we're talking about whether you should be maxing out your retirement accounts or not, we're really talking about tax bracket arbitrage, right? The idea is you really want to put as much as you can in those retirement savings when you're at your highest expected tax bracket with the hope that eventually you'll be utilizing that money and paying taxes on it when you're in a much lower tax bracket. And that's going to be different for each kind of person. You mentioned the FI or financial independence, retire early type person. Those people know that at a young age, they eventually are going to be in a low tax bracket, most likely if they retire early and therefore doing what you were talking about, maximizing those retirement savings early is very important because they will end in a very low tax bracket because they're not going to have a lot of income because they retired early. And that makes life a little bit easier. There's another issue we didn't mention, but there's also the idea of 401k matching. So if you work in a business where you receive a match for your contributions up to a certain level, even if you are still in a low tax bracket, it may make sense for you to at least fund your 401k up to the match so you get the free money.
1: That's absolutely right, Doc. One thing to think about there, though, is let's say you just graduated college this year. And so you only started working in September. So you only have three and a half months of income and you're going to be in a low tax bracket just by an accident of history. Many employers offer a Roth 401k. So instead of taking that deduction at 10%, you can put into the 401k as a Roth. So no deduction, but it's tax-free money and tax-free growth when you retire. The cool thing about that is a lot of employers will match that Roth contribution, right? The, the match actually goes into a separate traditional account. No big deal. You don't see the match. Now you'll be taxed on it later. But like you said, doc, it's free money, right? You gotta get that money off. You know, you gotta take that money because let's just say it's 50 cents on the dollar. No financial planner can get you an investment with an instantaneous 50 cent on the dollar return. You got to date that, forget taxes for a second. You got to make sure you're scooping up and getting those employer matches at a minimum. Generally speaking, if you're maxing out at the 19.5 level every year, you're going to get it. There's some plans where you just got to be careful about front-loading, right? So you can't just put everything in in January because you might lose out some matching there if you front-load in January, not a year-end consideration, look at your plan, summary plan description. There's a PDF usually in your workplace benefits portal where you can pull all that information and figure that out. I wanna
0: move eventually to talking about some more complex concepts like Roth conversions and HSAs. But before I do that, I hear a lot of people talking about either prepaying bills or deferring compensation
1: at this time of year.
0: What type of advantages would that give people?
1: So if you defer comp, what you're doing is you're pushing compensation into later periods, right? So maybe you're in an industry that really benefited from the shutdowns and from the virtual work environment. You know, there are some industries that are really hopping right now because of coronavirus. And so let's say 2020 was a really good year. You might have a deferred comp plan or just maxing out your 401k. The idea is simply a rate arbitrage, like you were saying earlier, Doc. 2020 is my high year, right? So I want to get income out of 2020 and just push it into the future because in the future, I'm just not going to do as well as I did in 2020. So that's one thing. One of my favorite accelerated payments ploy, Doc, that you mentioned is out here in California, a lot of us have property taxes due twice a year. That second payment is off, I think in LA County is due in March, but if it's been invoiced, so you can pay it in December And what that can do is get you a state income tax deduction in 2020 as opposed to 2021. The other place where this comes up is businesses. You know, a lot of businesses are on the cash method of uh, deducting their expenses. So, what you could do is just find some conferences you want to go to next year in Q4 of 2020 as opposed to 2021. And buy the admission, buy the conference fee now, book the ticket now. Of course, there's some risk with that with coronavirus, but you could find some expenses and just move those either into 2020, or you might say, oh, you know, 2020 was more of a startup year for me. 2021 is where I'm going to make a whole lot of money. So don't buy your conference ticket now, buy it in January, you know, put off those expenses. So this can work either way. You can accelerate payments or you can move them back into 2021 or later just depends on when you think you're going to be paying more tax. Take the deduction when you think you're going to be subject to more tax.
0: And again, in a lot of ways, we're again talking about tax bracket arbitrage, right? So you might defer compensation so that you don't push yourself to a higher tax bracket, or you might prepay because you have room still to grow in your tax bracket before the next one. So you might as well pay the taxes at the lowest bracket possible. That's exactly right, Doc. One other thing that you mentioned, again, before we get to some of these more complex topics, is end of year is a good time to look back at your beneficiaries. And we were talking about 401ks, et cetera. This is not something that necessarily has to be end of year, but I guess it's a good reminder that we should be looking at our beneficiaries for our different accounts on a regular basis.
1: Yeah, Doc G. So what this is... Is all your retirement accounts have something called a beneficiary designation form? And most of your bank accounts, your financial institution accounts, they generally have something called a payable on death form or a transfer on death form. And once a year, and if year end works for you, do it. You should check those things because you'll be surprised sometimes to find you know what? Maybe you didn't hit that last submit button. When you were updating that last time so maybe you got married during the year you know you need to update those beneficiary designation forms maybe somebody important in your life passed away this year update that beneficiary designation form you know people talk about wills and trusts and they're super important but your retirement accounts and your financial accounts when you die they pass through these beneficiary designation forms and it's important to update those things from time to time And just pick once a year to just make sure that the institution has the right beneficiaries on file for your account.
0: It's very, very important. And that's not just accounts, that's also life insurance, et cetera. I had a guest on once who was talking about the death of her spouse, and her spouse died, and he had the name of an ex girlfriend as a beneficiary. Wow. And can you imagine how difficult that was? It eventually resolved itself she worked it out with this person and the insurance company, and she eventually got the benefit. But I assume that was because everyone was being as helpful as possible. And you could certainly see a situation where that would have not gone so well. So beneficiaries are ultimately very, very, very important. And if end of year has to be the time you remind yourself when you're looking at your other tax planning to do that, it's a good way of keeping it front and center. So we've been talking about tax planning end of year, pretty much 101 level with Sean Mullaney, the FI tax guy. I want to push it to the 201 level. So I want to get to some of the more complicated topics. You cannot be in personal finance anymore without hearing the terms Roth conversion or backdoor Roth. What the heck does this mean? And why are people doing this at the end of the year?
1: Yes. So Roth conversion, really important technique in terms of managing your future retirement uh, distributions, right? So people, especially in the fire community love, hey, I'm going to max out my traditional 401k, 19.5 every year. I turn 50, I do 26,000 every year. Well, what happens is you get to age 72 and you've got 2 million, 3 million, 4 million in a traditional retirement account. And it's got to come out through these things called required minimum distributions. And then what happens? One of, one of the spouses dies. And now money that was coming out at the married filing joint brackets is now subject to the single tax brackets. And it goes up every year as you get older and older. So all of a sudden, people of modest means pay very high income taxes. So the idea is before you retire, before you collect social security, convert some of those traditional amounts into Roth amounts, right? And, and these conversions, they're taxable. But again, you go back to this tax rate arbitrage of I'm going to pay tax today if I'm in a lower tax bracket, right? So a Roth conversion is an elective thing. You can do it at any time, at any income level. So you might say, look, 2020 was a down year for me. Maybe one spouse lost a job for six months, and so our income is lower. Right? There are all sorts of reasons why your income might be low, and so you convert some money to a traditional IRA or from a traditional IRA. To a Roth IRA or within a 401k plan from a traditional 401k to a Roth. A couple of things to keep in mind, right? End of year is a great time for this strategy because at end of year you have a better understanding of what the income was in 2020. But also remember, you have a December 31st deadline on this planning, right? Meaning if you want to take advantage of your 2020 marginal tax bracket. That conversion's gotta be done by December 31st, 2020. And don't be calling Vanguard on December 31st, right? You want to plan this out, make sure it's it gets done in the right tax year. If you wake up on New Year's Day, 2021, and realize, hey, I was in the 10% tax bracket, I should go convert some money in 2020. It's too late. The ball dropping in Times Square, it is literally too late to do a 2020 Roth conversion. So you should be thinking about Roth conversions right now, particularly if your income was down. If your income's up, generally not a good strategy. Okay. Backdoor Roth IRA. You mentioned a great planning technique, Doc G. Lots of complexity on the backdoor Roth IRA, but essentially what it is, is it's instead of this whole traditional versus Roth debate that you'll see out there in the FI community, this is Roth versus taxable account. What you're doing is you're saying, okay, me and or me and my spouse are too high income to make a regular Roth contribution. So instead of a regular Roth contribution we're going to do a two step. We're going to do a traditional non-deductible IRA contribution right so let's say you're under 50 you do a six thousand dollar contribution that doesn't really affect your taxes as much right you have to file a form 8606 to report that with your tax return but okay there's no deduction for that it's just non-deductible. And then shortly thereafter, I generally say wait to the next month. What you do is you take that money, that $6,000 you put in the traditional non deductible Roth or tr- traditional non deductible IRA, my apologies, and then convert it to a Roth fully taxable, right? So let's say that traditional non deductible IRA grew to $6,002, right? It had a little bit of interest. You convert the $6,002 to a Roth IRA. The $6,002 is fully taxable, but you have $6,000 of basis. So what happens is it's a, a math calculation. $6,002 minus $6,000 is $2 of taxable income, de minimis, hardly anything. And now you have $6,000 in a Roth IRA, even though that you didn't qualify. The December 31st deadline, year end, the big thing there is these backdoor Roth IRAs, You can, you'll see them all over the internet, The big thing there though is you've got to be clean by December 31st. So you can't have other amounts in traditional IRAs or SEP IRAs or simple IRAs and do this backdoor Roth. And where I see it is, hey, I used to work at ABC company five years ago and I had $100,000 in my 401k and I rolled it over to a traditional IRA. Okay. There's nothing wrong with that. That's fine. But if you If you've done that and you don't do other planning, the backdoor Roth IRA is not going to work well for you because when you do the math, you're not going to recover all 6,000 like I talked about in my little example. You're going to only recover a very small piece of it. So by December 31st, if you want to do the backdoor Roth IRA, you got to get what I call clean. The best way to do that is to move that old rollover IRA into your workplace 401k if it will accept it. Many plans today will accept roll-ins from old traditional IRAs into your new workplace 401k. So that's a way of cleaning up your old traditional IRAs so that they are now in a workplace 401k and they don't get in the way of your backdoor Roth IRA. I and others have blogged a lot about this. It gets a little complicated when we're talking on a podcast but just remember, December 31st is a big date if you want to do a backdoor Roth IRA and you have other traditional IRAs. The other thing, Doc, is if you can't do that, maybe your workplace 401k doesn't accept roll, roll-ins. Okay, fine. There are other ways to skin the cat to be tax efficient. But just remember that that's out there. And December 31st is a big deadline in terms of making sure your backdoor Roth IRA is properly done.
0: Yeah, it's important to remind people that it is not the end-all be-all, but if you have the wherewithal to do it, it's a nice way of taking money, paying tax on it now, if that's efficient, and then never being taxed on it again. And that's really the idea is I can pay tax on this now, get it to a tax protected space, but then you will not have to pay tax on withdrawals, which is unlike our 401ks and our traditional IRAs that we eventually have RMDs and end up paying taxes on.
1: Yeah. And Dr. And G, just remember that with the backdoor Roth, most folks who are looking to do a backdoor Roth make too much to contribute to a Roth IRA. And they also make too much to deduct a traditional IRA contribution. So it's either have that $6,000 in your taxable accounts and just have it sit growing. And yeah, it grows at tax advantage rates. You know, the dividend rates generally are 15% if it's qualified and your income is low enough, but it's still taxable. This is what you're doing here is you're saying, okay, I'm going to get that money eventually into a Roth IRA and not be subject to dividend taxes and later capital gains taxes.
0: And I think I'd be remiss in ending this section if we didn't at least mention the HSA, something that we love to talk about, another way of protecting yourself from taxes. How are people using HSAs for both healthcare spending and possibly just retirement savings in general?
1: Yeah, I'm very much fond of the HSA account. So what this is, is if you and or your spouse have high deductible health plans, right? So that's your insurance coverage as a so-called high deductible health plan. I believe that deductible this year is $2,800 for a family plan. Check me on that and just check your own plan to make sure you qualify. But if you've got it, the best thing to do if you can is payroll deductions into your HSA every pay period. So what they'll do is they will take a small amount of your paycheck Put it into an HSA, you get an income tax deduction and a payroll tax deduction. You don't pay FICA tax on that, right? So that's even better than a lot of the deductions we've been talking about. And then what happens is that money grows tax free for the rest of your life. And then, at well, first of all, you can take it out anytime for qualified medical expenses. Now, what I generally advise clients is don't wait till you're age 65 at age 65, start taking it out for qualified medical expenses. It'll be tax-free for younger clients it will have benefited from years of tax-free growth. And what you do is certain Medicare premiums can be reimbursed through HSA. So that's a great way to bail out the HSA money and enjoy years worth of tax-free growth. The other thing to do is keep some records, right? So you're 40 years old, you have an HSA. Don't use it, right? And if you get cancer, you have some horrible disease, absolutely use it. But if you get a sprained ankle, the weekend warrior injuries, right? Those sorts of things, your annual physical, don't use the HSA. Save the receipt, have a little spreadsheet somewhere, log all your medical expenses. And then when you turn 65 or older, what you do is you say, you know, when I was 43, I had $250 for my annual physical and I had you know, weekend warrior, sprained ankle, 750 bucks. I have all these old medical expenses. I'm going to reimburse myself out of my HSA. And it's a really cool planning technique because there's no rule saying you have to reimburse yourself for medical expenses in any particular time frame. But the two big mistakes I see folks make with HSAs is, is I'm young, I'm relatively healthy and I'm making a lot of money and I use my HSA to fund my annual medical expenses. Don't do it. Use your taxable accounts, right? That money's getting taxed anyway, so use your taxable ex- accounts. And then the other thing is a lot of folks have large HSAs that are all in cash. HSAs, if you do it right, grow tax-free. So if your plan has good investment options, and many do now, not all, but many do, invest it in, in high-growth mutual funds. You know, Generally speaking, your low-cost index equi- equity index funds, invest in that and, and have that growth Be in a tax free account if you do the HSA right. So, cash is just not a good asset to have in an HSA in many cases until you get to like age 65 and older. And then you start using it as a piggy bank to actually fund certain medical care, Medicare premiums, actual medical expenses, and your old reimbursed medical or unreimbursed uh, medical expenses that you reimburse yourself for.
0: The magic of the HSA is you don't pay tax going in, you don't pay tax as it grows. And you don't pay tax as you spend it if you use it for medical expenses. And as you were saying, there's some ways to get around reimbursing yourself for previous medical expenses. So overall, there are very few vehicles that we can invest in that do such things. So it's it's really quite impressive.
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. It's deductible on the way in. And it, it, so it's like a traditional IRA in the, on the way in and it's then tax-free on the way out. And if you do it through workplace payroll withholding, it works there. And then one other year end point on the HSA is if you get HSA co- or a high deductible health plan coverage at the end of the year, so in December, on December 1st, if you are covered by a high deductible health plan for the first time, you can treat it as if you were covered for the entire year, right? You know, work with your advisor on that. But as long as by December 1st, you get that high deductible health plan coverage in place for the first time, you're generally treated as having had it in place for the full year. And you can actually make a full HSA deductible contribution. Now, a lot of times you can't do that through your payroll. So you actually have to do a separate wire transfer or check into the account. You don't get the payroll tax break, but you get the income tax break on it. So that could be a, a, a helpful plan if this year at open enrollment, you changed over to a high deductible plan. So up to this
0: point, we've been talking about tax moves you can make at the end of the year and specifically tax optimization from income. Let's flip to the other side and talk about non-income based strategies. I hear a lot of people talking about capital gains and lost harvesting at this time of the year, and I think a lot of
1: people don't understand this concept. Could you clarify it for us? So tax loss harvesting, let's start there, right? So you have in a taxable account. So this is not your Roth IRA, not your 401k, none of that stuff, right? Just regular taxable account. You have a mutual fund, you have a stock holding and you log on to your account and it says there's an unrealized loss here. A lot of times it'll be in red font, right? You have a $5,000 unrealized loss in Acme stock, okay? what you can do is you can sell that stock and then you report the $5,000 capital loss on your tax return. And if you have no other capital gains or losses, the 5,000 shows up on your tax return. You get to deduct 3,000 as an ordinary loss against your W-2 earnings or your interest or you know your social security, whatever it is, your ordinary income, $3,000 loss. And then two thousand gets moved into the next year, right? You can only deduct up to three thousand dollars, but tax loss harvesting is a way of hey, I've got some stocks in my mutu- or stocks, mutual funds, ETFs. There's a loss in there. I'm going to flip the switch, and I'm either going to offset other big capital gains, and or get down to three thousand of an ordinary deduction for those losses. This can be a tax planning play. It can also be a, a redeployment play. You know, a lot of folks. 20 years ago invested in XYZ company and now their investment philosophy has changed and they don't want to be in XYZ stock anymore right if XYZ stock is at a loss there's no tax cost of getting out of there right so it could be a great way to to redeploy your, your portfolio into what you want to be in today and or just get that $3000 loss on your tax return or offset other capital gains So that's tax loss harvesting. And people
0: gamify it a little to the extent that they will either sell a stock they believe in and reinvest after a certain amount of time in that same stock if they think it's going to be down for a while, or... They will sell an investment and then right away reinvest in a similar investment. So let's say that you really believe in a certain sector. And so you sell Microsoft and buy Apple feeling that that sector is going to do well. Or if you're talking about broad-based mutual funds, maybe you sell your S&P 500 index and buy another index, which you think is very similar, but not exactly the same, which you think is going to recover later
1: on. Yeah, Doc G. So people do gamify it and it it depends on your situation. I myself, am not a big fan of planning into gamifying, meaning you're going to retire one day on total return. You're not going to retire because you had $3,000 deductions on your tax return. But say you're in some mutual fund, you mentioned the S&P 500, right? And there are many more broad-based domestic indices. And none of this is investment advice for anybody, but let's just say you're in the S&P 500 and for whatever reason, you had a loss in it. What you could do, Doc G, is what you're saying. You could sell it, and then you know, and claim a loss in that, all right? And then you would go and find a much more diversified, broadly diversified domestic stock index fund. Or a sector fund. I'm not a huge fan of sector funds, but let's just say you decided that's how you wanted to go. Yeah. And that would be a way to sort of gamify it a little bit as well. So there can be that aspect. Now there's something called a wash sale. So you just got to be careful with that. Right. Meaning I can't sell the S&P 500 index at a loss on Monday. And then Friday, buy it back, right? There's basically a 30-day window on either side of the transaction. It's a total 61-day window. If I buy substantially similar securities or the same securities, the loss gets disallowed, right? And so where it gets really bad is I sell S&P 500 in my taxable account. And then 15 days later, as part of my regular workplace contribution, I buy S&P 500 in my 401k, you disallow the loss, right? Right. And so that's so you just want to be careful with that. But yes, there absolutely can be some arbitrage, some play in the joints there, and you can unlock those $3,000 losses if you do it right.
0: wanted to note too, people really get in trouble with the wash sale when, like you said, they sell the S&P 500 index in the retirement fund. Maybe they have the S&P 500 index. Maybe they don't even have a new contribution, but their dividends reinvest. And that's another yes. way the wash sale can get you and you not even realize it. So you have to turn off your dividend reinvestments if you're going to do something like that to make sure you don't accidentally create the wash sale. The other point to that, which I think people miss, and it took me a while to understand too, is this idea is great, right? So you bought the S&P 500 index for a high amount and everything goes down, the whole market goes down, so you sell it and then you have all of these losses and you use that same money to, let's say, buy a total market index, But 20 years down the road from now, your new cost basis is much lower than your old cost basis was. So again, you are still going to be paying tax. Again, we're just doing more of a tax arbitrage here. Hopefully, what you're doing is you're creating the losses when you're in the higher tax bracket and maybe you're selling when you're way down in retirement or maybe pre-traditional retirement, but you're in a lower tax bracket and therefore are using that arbitrage system well to actually make a profit from it.
1: Well, Dr. G, not to be morbid, but we could talk about the ultimate tax planning strategy, which is your own death. Right? <laughs> so maybe you did some tax loss harvesting, and then you die with the replacement right. securities. Under today's law, your heirs get a step up in basis at your death, right? So if you have, you know, let's just say you bought Apple in the year 1980, and it's just through the roof right? from the year 1980. I don't even know if it was a public company back then. I believe it was. And then you die in the year 2025. Your heirs could sell Apple the day after your death. No capital gains. They get at the fair market value of Apple on the day of your death generally. So there are some tax planning techniques like that as well out there.
0: Yeah. And it's it's mirrored by some of the real estate techniques too, which is you can keep on turning over your profits from selling real estate into new units until you die and leave them to your children who then could sell them right away and not pay those taxes. Before we go too far here, can you just give us a word on tax gain harvesting? We talked about tax loss harvesting. There's the opposite side to that coin.
1: Yeah. So tax gain harvesting is for relatively lower income folks, right? So this is where you are in the 12% federal tax bracket or lower, and you can sell long-term capital gains at a 0% capital gain rate. So let's just say your taxable income this year otherwise is like $20,000, right? So you're subject to a 0% federal long-term capital gains rate, and you're sitting on some Apple stock. Why not sell it, trigger a $10,000 long-term capital gain Report that gain now. Your taxable income is 30, but the way the capital gains taxes work is that's a zero federal long term capital gains tax rate, and you've just reset your basis. You didn't even have to die, it's really good. But anyway, this only really applies for our lower income listeners. But in 2020, maybe you lost a job, you know, there could be reasons why you're a lower income taxpayer this year. One just little thing on that is state income taxes, right? States generally do not have favored capital gains rates. So you could do some tax gain harvesting, reset the basis to today's higher rate, pay no federal tax, but you might have to pay a little state tax. Depends on where you live.
0: I want to talk about two other opportunities for you to lower your tax bill this year. You mentioned one of them before. One is donating and specifically donating using a donor-advised fund. Talk to us about what kind of deduction you get just from donating in general and then why someone would use a donor-advised fund in particular.
1: Yeah, and I'll give you an example. Somebody who donates every year at their church, okay? So maybe what you do is you, every Sunday, you put some money in the collection plate. And let's just say that adds up to 500 a month or 6,000 a year. Okay. And you're just putting cash in there. So what you would do is you'd say, okay, that's $6,000. That's an itemized deduction. So if I itemize, and that's an if, right? As we talked standard versus itemize, then I get a $6,000 itemized deduction. Well, maybe what happens is, you know, my, I'm a renter, say, and I'm married, and maybe I pay $10,000 in state taxes and then I have the $6,000 deduction. Well, and and that's it so I'm at $16,000 that's not 24,800 so guess what I've got to take a standard deduction well wait a minute I donate $6,000 every year to my church and that's sort of predictable so what I could do is I could say you know what I'm going to take four or five years worth of donations 24,000 30,000 and I'm not going to give them to my church right now What I'm going to do is, I'm going to call the Vanguard, Fidelity, Schwab, one of those type companies, and say, here's 24,000. Here's 30,000. End of year. Put it in a donor advised fund. What happens is that 24,000 or 30,000 I give to the donor advised fund is an immediate itemized deduction. It's a charitable contribution deduction. Okay. So I put that on my 2020 tax return. And let's just say I did 24,000. I do 24,000 plus 10,000 of state taxes. And all of a sudden I'm taking an itemized deduction of 34,000 this year. And then what I do is every week I give a little bit out of the donor advised fund to the church. The church sees no difference, right? They're just getting their same amount of money just from a different source, but it's essentially from me. And in those later years in 2021 for the next four years, I take zero charitable deductions and I go back to the standard deduction. So without the donor advised fund, I would have had standard deduction every year because I don't qualify to itemize. I'm not high enough. What I've done with the donor advised fund is I've got one year of really high st- itemized deductions, 34,000 instead of the standard at 24, eight. And then I go back to my, uh, my standard deduction. So this isn't even an arbitrage play. This is an accelerate a deduction and the church sees no difference, it's great. Just a couple of things to keep in mind with this type of planning is, one, that money in the donor advised fund is no longer your money. Now, yes, it's going to fund your charitable contributions, but if you need that back to pay for a new swimming pool, can't get it, right? The roof you know, needs to be replaced. That money's lost, right? So you gotta be careful with the donor advised fund. You gotta put in enough to make sure that you'll be okay without that money. And then, second of all, this doesn't make sense. You know, in my example, I had twenty four thousand. Well, let's say you want to do five thousand. In my example, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense because it doesn't get you from standard deduction to itemized deduction. So you're gonna want to put in enough so that it significantly increases your deductions. So those are some things to think about. One last thing on that, though, is what I call the hyper donor advised fund. Let's say you're sitting on some Apple stock and it's got a huge built-in gain. You you know, but you want to diversify. You're not happy being in in Apple anymore. You think the ride's over, right? This is just your perception. Well, but you know, if you were to sell that stock, you got to pay capital gains tax, right? That's not cool. What you could do is you could donate the Apple stock, the appreciated stock to the donor advised fund. The fund itself will just sell it. They they don't generally hold things like Apple stock and donor advised funds. They will sell that stock, but the gain on the stock is not included on your tax return. It's a way of wiping that gain away. And let's say you give $10,000 worth of Apple stock and you take itemized deductions. You can generally... Deduct as an itemized deduction $10,000 the fair market value. So you erase that capital gain and you get a tax deduction on your tax return. It could be a nice way of managing some old cats and dogs in your portfolio that have done really well, but have created a big capital gain.
0: Yeah. And that, it, even though this sounds fairly complex, it's certainly something people do. My parents gifted me some stock from a company my stepfather worked for, and it had massive capital gains. And we had that exact decision. The company was actually being sold, and basically the stock would be liquidated upon selling of the company. So I knew I had these huge taxes coming my way. And so what I did is I took it and I put in a donor advised fund, which would fund my donating for the next five years. But I was able to avoid a huge amount of taxes doing that. And once the money was in the donor advised fund, I'm the advisor to that fund. So I put that money into an index fund. And not only from year to year can I use it and distribute to the charities that I believe in, it actually continues to grow as the stock market grows. So it's a really nice way to do it and uh, take advantage of the tax code.
1: And it grows, and that growth is not reported on your tax return. So those interests and dividends that are built up in the donor advised fund, They don't hit your tax return, Doc G, so it's another benefit. One other thing to keep in mind is we've talked about built-in gain or appreciated stock. What about built-in loss stock? Some of you have you know, some company that's got a big built-in loss. That is not something you want to ever give to a donor advised fund because you eliminate the loss, right? Just like you eliminate the gain, you eliminate the loss. So let's say you're sitting on a bad stock. You want to get rid of it and you want to give the money to charity. Great sell it, pop the loss, show that loss on your tax return, and then take the proceeds and either do a donor advised fund or a direct gift to charity or whatever you want to do, but never give a charity or a donor advised fund built in lost stock. I want to
0: offer up one last, what I believe is an advanced technique, which in some ways is similar to donation. So if you have stocks that have huge capital gains in them, you can defray those capital gains by donating or by doing a donor advised fund. Another interesting thing that has come up in our tax code as of late is opportunity zone investing. So this, I think, is another way for you to defray huge capital gains from, let's say, a stock sale. What exactly is that?
1: So this was part of the tax reform back in late 2017. What they set up are the ability to invest and they call them qualified opportunity zone funds. And so let's say you have a big capital gain. What you can do is roll that gain into one of these funds. They generally invest in sort of real estate type investments in areas. I believe it's the governors of each state get to designate areas that that need development. They're not always the worst neighborhoods either. One thing I don't like about them is it's letting the tax tail wag the dog. Meaning you are investing in an investment for a tax reason not for an investment reason so i think this is a situation doc where you know if you had a very substantial gain i think you should look into a qualified opportunity zone fund, but you want to be skeptical. And I generally think that's the sort of thing that benefits from working with an advisor. It's sort of one of these things, it's not the default solution, but in the very, very specific fact pattern, and we're talking about a very large gain, I think rolling into a qualified opportunity zone fund can be the right decision. But again, you need the very precise facts to make sure it's the right decision for you. And that's the sort of thing that I think usually benefits from working with an advisor. So Sean, I feel
0: like we've been in the midst of the weeds in tax optimization at the end of year. Let's take the thousand foot view. The problem with tax optimization, especially at the end of the year, is it's complicated. In some senses, it's hard. It's something you've got to really think about. How much does taking the time and learning this information and getting the right advisors, how much will this affect your wealth over time?
1: How important is it for us
0: to do this difficult thing?
1: I said something earlier that you're going to retire one day based on total return, not based on $3,000 losses on your tax return. So it's important to keep this in perspective, right? So you don't want to be chasing every rabbit hole in the tax planning world. That said, effective long-term tax planning that is respectful of your overall investment strategy can be very impactful. Here's an example, Doc you come into my virtual office, right? You're in your fifties and you've got $2 million in a 401k and nothing else. We now have to do some significant planning and some of that planning might be painful, but let's say you came into my office and you've got $2 million, but a half million is in Roth accounts. Okay. And you want to retire. And let's say 300,000 or 400,000 is in a taxable account. Well, now it's going to be a lot easier, if you're, whether you're working with an advisor or not, to retire. And then you know, there are other areas where this can be very impactful. I alluded to one earlier. This is the widow's penalty, right? So these required minimum distributions at age 72, other than Roth IRAs, you have to start taking money out of your retirement accounts. And it starts off pretty low, but then it goes way up right, as you get into your 80s and 90s. And if one spouse dies then all that income has to hit one tax return at single brackets, not joint brackets. So I think tax planning, particularly good tax planning, that's sort of in concert with your overall financial planning and overall investment objectives and financial objectives can be very impactful in your future, right? You're going to ultimately get there through total return and investing, 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 but some tax optimization can be very beneficial. And you are part of the financial independence movement or the financial
0: independence, retire early. Us group of people who are interested in that community really like to be DIYers. So talk to me about the importance of having professional advice. Are these the kind of things you can really do on your own or do you need a CPA or a financial planner to help you make some of these moves?
1: So- I'll give you two extremes, right? So one extreme is I make you know seventy five thousand dollars, and I want to do a Roth IRA contribution. Great, go for it. Make a Roth IRA contribution, right? You don't need to call a financial planner or anybody like that to make a Roth IRA contribution. But let's hearken back to some coronavirus experience. I saw on Twitter a really well respected practitioner, Stephen Nelson, tweeted about he got a lot of emails and you know messages from small business owners these were s corporation owners and they wanted to figure out how much ppp loan they could apply for and they said to him hey i have an s corporation i've never taken a w2 all owner withdrawals how much ppp loan can i get and the answer sadly to the question was zero right you cannot in that case get a ppp loan But guess what? You also have a lot of payroll taxes you now owe owe to the government that you've never paid. You've messed up your retirement accounts if you've done it, that you know, your self-employed retirement accounts, if you've done that. You want to do a Roth IRA contribution, you're well under the limits, fine. But you want to start a small business as an S corporation. Boy, you probably better have a tax professional with you because you probably don't know what you don't know in that case. So it depends on the level of complexity but you can get yourself in some real hot water and lose out on some real benefits if you don't work with a professional.
0: Sean Mullaney, the FI tax guy, I wanted to thank you for coming on and talking about end of year tax moves. I want to end this episode the way I end every episode by asking what is up next in your life and where can we find you if we want to learn more?
1: Doc, thanks so much for having me. Really enjoyed chatting with you today. You can find me at my financial planning uh, website, my registered investment advisor firm, MullaneyFinancial.com. You can also find me on my blog, com. Again, that's com. It's the intersection of tax and financial independence. And what's up next for me is a lot more financial planning with my clients.
0: This has been the Earn and Invest Podcast. On behalf of myself, Doc G, I'd like to thank Sean Mullaney. That's a wrap. Hey, everybody, wanted to make sure that you guys were aware that the conversation continues not only here on the podcast, but on the earn and invest Facebook group that is facebook.com slash group slash earn and invest where we talk about a number of different issues similar to the podcast. We talk about finances, life, occasionally politics. Pretty much anything going on in the world today is fair game. Recently, I posted an article from thefinancialdiet.com by Emma Patti. She wrote, why I joined, then left the FIRE movement. This was a controversial article and talks a little bit about how she found financial independence retire early and some misgivings she now has with the movement. One is this idea that anyone can reach financial independence, and I have to admit this was a thought that I certainly had at the beginning of my journey. I looked at this idea that anyone can save... Anyone can learn how to invest. Anyone can be frugal. And therefore, anyone should be able to reach financial independence. Now, as Emma talks about, it's really easy to think that way. If you were born to a family that's middle class, or if you live in the right area, or even follow the right politics, There are many choices that are made for us before we are even born that can affect how well we do financially, even our racial makeup, even what city and place we were born in, what job we hold, how we deal with this pandemic and recession. All of these are factors as I go farther and farther in my journey to understand personal finances and to understand how and what role I want money to play in my life, I realized that things might not be as simple as I thought before. Whereas for me, getting to financial independence was not particularly complicated. I grew up in a white middle-class family. I had all the benefits of education and enough money to go to college. I had good role models. Pretty much I had everything I needed to succeed. So it's no surprise that I became a physician, made enough money to eventually become financially independent. Would this have happened if I was born under different circumstances? And the truth of the matter is, I just don't know. The point being is that financial independence, retire early, is a wonderful concept. It's a concept I fully believe in. But the reality might be that it's not a concept that makes sense for everybody, nor is it a goal that everyone will be able to reach. It really comes down to a question of personal responsibility versus life circumstances. And there were a lot of comments. On this post in the Facebook group about just these issues, Matt Widholm said, The element of choice seems to be undervalued in this article. If she never chooses to invest her money early, then luck never has a chance to grow her portfolio. Tim Larson said, follow up comment, there is a certain irony that us financially independent people who make thoughtful, careful choices in money and life to a big extent, rely on the non-financial independence community and their excessive consumption to drive the economy and our portfolios upwards. It's safe to say that the majority will never be willing to make the necessary sacrifices to change this symbiotic relationship substantially. Donna Boone says, the comments so far further prove how true this article is. Matthew Glowacki, having a financially independent family is key. The biggest drag on acquiring wealth for the bottom 80% is family emergencies. And Philip Munier says, I don't know if it was the author's intent, but she did a really good job explaining the 80-20 principle. While there are prominent white male tech people in the fire community, there are a lot of examples of people of all backgrounds talking about financial independence. Everyone starts at a different place and all journeys are different. I try not to compare myself to where others are on their journey and instead focus on things that I can control. All of this brings up this idea that financial independence means different things to different people and how much personal responsibility makes A difference is really something we argue about here in this community. Certainly, I believe our choices can make us better off financially. Certainly, I believe that any journey towards financial independence or at least having good financial habits starts with personal decision making. But I'm also aware of the fact that maybe we looked at financial independence too simply. Uh, Maybe we looked at it without empathy. And that's something that I've really been trying to do is to look at others' actions with much more empathy and grace and understand that what might seem simple to me in my life circumstance is not the same for everyone else. So is personal responsibility the key to financial independence? I don't know. Are we born to the right set of circumstances, which makes it easier to get there? For sure. Can someone who's not born in those circumstances get there too? I'm sure they can, but maybe it's much more difficult. The point being is that, as I've said before, maybe financial independence is the wrong goal. Maybe the goal is to have a stronger financial footing. And that is something I feel everyone can strive for, whether you were born rich whether you were born poor, whether you were born in a nice neighborhood or a bad neighborhood, whether you went to college or don't go to college, I think if we can strive to make our financial lives better by learning about saving, by trying to figure out if we can invest and how is the best way to do that, by being thoughtful about our futures and possible retirements, those are the way forward. And that's what I hope you get out of listening to the Earn and Invest podcast. Hopefully we'll help you form a blueprint of how to be successful, how to be better off financially, whether financial independence is in the cards for you or not. Certainly, I hope we can help you get to better. Whatever better is for you. Cool. What'd you think?
1: I thought it went well. I, I I hope I wasn't too long-winded on some of the answers. No, uh, I, I mean I great, wanted,
0: e- even though I kind of cribbed it. Is this is the simple conversation? I actually wanted some of the more complex issues to come out too, or I wouldn't have asked about them. Um,
1: no, you were great, and I thought the fo- some of the follow-ons were fantastic.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Thanks. I, I think they're great issues, and they're stuff. I mean, this is stuff I struggle with, right? So again, I, I'm the son of an accountant. My mom, like this is, she loves this stuff, right? So <laughs> if I have to really think a lot and read a lot to process this, I can't imagine what your average person who has no inclination to look at it or study it, but it all does make sense. And that's what I think I like about this conversation is it's complicated, but it makes sense. And there's some simple things we can look into that can make our lives better, so.